Hello and welcome to this episode of the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood. I'm an acute care nurse practitioner practicing emergency medicine and critical care. I'm also an EMT and Wilderness and Extreme Medicine Fellow here at World Extreme Medicine. I am lucky to be joined by our guest, Harrison Carter. And Harrison is a conservation biologist a storyteller and explorer with a fascination in human and wildlife conflict that has taken him to some of the world's most extraordinary places. He has traveled and filmed in over 50 different countries worldwide, and his expeditions include traversing the Guyanese jungle, Indonesian rainforest, and Sri Lankan lowlands in search of the world's most deadly snakes and their stories. Having his career in investment banking and management consultancy, Harrison is now studying for his master's degree in conservation and biodiversity at the University of Exeter before heading out on his next adventure. So Harrison, let me start with this. How did you go from investment banking and management consultancy to trying to find some of the world's deadliest snakes? And then I'll let you take it from there. But I think that's the question we all have. I tell you what, it sounds like I've been busy. It sounds like I've been busier than what I actually have been. Um, I think for me, I've always been fascinated in snakes. Um, but at the same time, my parents um, own businesses. And so I've never really been ignorant to the fact that not always do snakes bring uh, consistent income. Um, and those two juxtaposed agenda items for me often kind of conflicted Um and, you know, when I was younger, it was a case of getting on every single travel opportunity that I could have to go out and experience snakes in the wild. Um, being from the UK, we have snakes here. We have a common adder, common grass snake, and they are really interesting and often underplayed. But when you can see, um, you know, spectacle cobras in India, that's a lot cooler. So how soon can you get on the plane and get out there and kind of get hands on experience? It is totally different. Uh, to how we see them in our zoos or reptile shops or wherever kind of place you could find them in the UK. Um, so it was rapidly, uh, really important for me to kind of, with my background, get a bit of a grounding um, in, in management, finance, economics, my undergrad in management and finance from the University of York, um, where I did a year at Goldman Sachs and then investment banking and then later uh, North Highland um, management consulting um, for the UK central government. Um, and I, I think I'd be lying if I said something along the lines of, oh, I've always wanted to um, leave and I hated every second and I did it to pay the bills because those would all be lies. Um, there's no question that uh, I wanted to have a career talking about snakes, uh, talking about human snake conflict. And I think it's really underrepresented. Um, but I was also keen to, I think, flex some different muscles. Um, I, ha I have a natural inter interest towards that side of the world. So um, having had a few years experience there, um, it's now time for me to be a little bit selfish um, and kind of jump back into university, which I feel is always a very good ground when you're shifting career and gives you a very healthy base, chance to learn some new tools um, and then new tools um, compared or at least combined with like old motivation uh, is a healthy combination for, for bold new tasks. So um, I think that's kind of that's kind of the journey in terms of mental prioritization. Um, but of course, you're suggesting that there are no snakes in investment banking and consulting. And that's definitely not true. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to throw that out there. But uh, I think you, you beat me to the punch, Harrison. So, you know, many people, though, they want to have a sense of adventure, they might go to these same very same places, but they're going to enjoy them from a resort. You, you've you decided to instead 
um, to go out and to experience human and wildlife interactions. And particularly, you've been focused on on snakes. So what what was it that brought you towards snakes? Have you always enjoyed that as a child? Or was it just, let me find the craziest thing I can think of? <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot in there, I think, to unpick. Um, yeah. For me, for me, I think, uh, kind of definition of holiday uh, is quite interesting. Um, I, I definitely like winding down and, uh, and taking time off. And, and for me, I often find my most tranquil moments when I'm face to face with deadly venomous snakes. Um, I guess from medical perspective, that would be very confusing. But um, when I'm interacting with, I don't know, I mean, I'm, we catch an awful lot of deadly venomous snakes in Sri Lanka, Russell's vipers, sore scale vipers spectacle cobras when you're when you're face to face with um, something so immensely deadly um i i just feel incredibly relaxed uh, i think uh, if you didn't it's probably the wrong thing for you to get um stuck into because it requires a very calm mind um holistic thinking um and and you know precise and precise and steady movements um but with regards to kind of how i how i got started into all this it's so funny. I was actually at home the other week with my dad, who was um, going through our old garage, and everyone will have old boxes full of old books and toys when they were children. Um, and going through one of my old books, there's about a thousand sort of you know cheap plastic snakes and plastic lizards and frogs and all of the weird things that children pick up at fun fairs. I'm sure across the US and you know definitely in the UK. Uh, and I was, I was looking him pull all these things out of the box and said, "How did you never know?" <laughs> how did you not know that this was what I was going to be doing? I mean, this is, this is slap bang in the middle of the face. Um, and when I was, when I was eight years of age, uh, I, I knew that I wanted two things uh, in life at that point. I wanted either a PlayStation um, uh, or, or my first pet snake. And my mum said, well, yeah, you're not having a PlayStation. I was always an outdoors child. Uh, um, we grew up with, you know, huge access to the British countryside surrounded by animals. So she was like, we can deal with snakes. We can't deal with technology. So, um, you know, I was, I was really kind of lucky in that sense. And my parents, on the other hand, very unlucky. I think they thought it was a fad. Um, you know, and of course, sort of a few years later, here we are chatting about um, much more significant snakes than corn snake, of course, originating from the US, um, my first no, snake. So did, did you get a how it originated. eventually? Did you eventually get oh, a PlayStation course. as well? Of course. Yes. Good. Good. Of course. So go yeah. on. I, I mean. <laughs> no, no. I think um, I'm not sure it's a lesson for everyone, but I always go for uh, maybe just ask for forgiveness over permission. Uh, sometimes you have to get involved and see what comes out, um, wrestle the hornet's nest before um, dealing with whatever, whatever happens. But um, I think with regards to kind of my fascination for snakes, yes, always since I've been young, and I think growing up around animals has always been, uh, a big one for me, I found very natural affiliation being in close, close proximity to big animals, um, cows I and mean, loads of dogs, everything that you can imagine. But for me, um, whilst I like animals, I also like different things. Um, I have uh, red hair. Um, I have kind of different interests. My family are a bit weird in comparison to everyone else in the town. So I've always kind of stuck out a little bit different. Um, and I think putting that sort of scoping of preference in an animal setting I, I scales scales Steve like scales were really cool to me I just I, I kind of couldn't get my head around them and I, I couldn't wait to get my hands on them um and you know I was really 
I was really lucky, actually. It's, I guess a little bit controversial, but I spent a lot of time at my local reptile store, um, and now they're publicly kind of ridiculed for being maybe you know not the best in terms of animal welfare, not the best in terms of how you should interact with things. But I was really, really lucky. I had a, a really wonderful guy who was heaps of books. I mean, would, would kind of go through all of the herpetological um, literature with me and discuss and, and have meaningful interactions with kind of the snakes in the shops. Um, and, you know, when you can't get abroad and see these things in the world, and I think being serious, that that accounts for most people. Um, you know, sometimes there are solutions closer to home. Even if you, you grow up in the rural countryside in the UK and you want to work with a king cobra, that, that's very much possible. It just depends on how you view your opportunities. Uh, and for me, I think maybe it's a bit of arrogance or confidence, but I, I definitely um, found that uh, and then rolled with the punches continuously. It was uh, a case of having a lot of experience with um, captive um, animals, uh, moving abroad, working with uh, NGOs. Um, and then my, my uh, previous partner uh, had, had a house in Sri Lanka and um, so fortunate to, to have spent so many years um, out in Sri Lanka with them. And it, that's really where the interest for me went from. Okay, really interested, having a wonderful time, but really I'm playing a lot of sport and my academic work's important. I've got a social life at home with my friends. I'm, I'm a normal sort of 16-year-old to coming face-to-face -face with a spectacle cobra and knowing pretty much in that instant that there is something in that to explore for me. Um, and I, I've been so lucky that I found something that I'm very confident saying that at, at least for the next few years, I have to focus on that. It, it is what captures my attention. Um, and so all of the decisions downstream from that become a lot easier. Um, fine, there are funding blockers, job, and then backlog to how we can get snake stuff. But in terms of the why, the why was quite simple. So I guess being, being exposed to something, um, you know, in Asia, there's, there's not the same level of health and safety as there is um, uh, in the West. And I guess that's generally a really good thing. Um, but, but for me, um, having that glass taken back and being moved away from seeing something from three meters to seeing something a few centimeters. And of course, that's an important distinction because people listening to this will think, well, surely that's really dangerous. And, and, and that's, of course, a misnomer. It, it totally depends on the snake and the behavior of the snake. And so it's very tough for us to really develop our understanding of venomous reptiles um, if we're not actually having a chance to really exhibit how how they work. And you can't do that um, two meters behind glass. At least your average person can't do that through observation. So um, seeing something in real life just it, it sparked an interest and then that gave credibility uh, and then that sparked further international travel. Uh, I've been to Sri Lanka about um, 12 times now. When I go there, I do a lot of capture and release work. Um, so we go to paddy fields, places of work, people's homes, um, take venomous snakes. We put them in, in pillowcases, which I know sounds really bizarre to most people, but actually they're breathable, dark, small spaces, which is perfect for snakes. Um, and we do a very good job, um, me with some local guys, of actually explaining to the locals what the, what the snakes are, how they work, why they're, why they're at their home, why they're in the field, um, their behavior, rough ecology. And, you know, maybe not all of it goes in. Um, but I really think that if you take the time to deliver a story properly and simply in terms of apples and pears, which is how we talk about it uh, in Sri Lanka, maybe one in 10 people um, listen. I mean, that has a knock-on effect to children and children and children. That's how we build a cultural change. So 
Um, that's been really interesting. And then I've since done that in South Africa, working with the big African rock pythons uh, in Indonesia, big king cobras, um, longest venomous snake in the world. Uh, and then more recently, um, led my own expedition to Guyana, looking for all kinds of creepy crawlies. Um, ultimately, the world's heaviest bodied snake, the green anaconda, which is completely victimized by film, um, but um, still super, super cool. I think you raise a really important point, which is that, you know, traditionally the human and snake interactions have, for the most part, been very, very negative, um, especially for the snake. I think a lot of people fear snakes. Um, you know, these snakes reside, as you mentioned, um, you know, in the example of the rice paddies, they're, you know, in the workplace and they're, you know, making this workplace somewhat hazardous. Um, but they were there first and there's a reason they're there and that, you know, we need to work cooperatively with these animals as with, with others. Um, and that educational piece, I think, is very, very critical. And it's, it's great to hear that that's part of, you know, what you're doing. It's not just going out, you know, and catching these, you know, observing these animals or catching them or even providing, you know, doing research on these animals. It's also ensuring that, you know, our interactions with these, you know, these beautiful animals um, are more positive. Um, and we see this, you know, with sharks. Um, you know, I had a, a great podcast with uh, Mike Hudson, uh, who is uh, a paramedic who uh, works with great white sharks. And, you know, we have a similar, you know, um, issue with with sharks. We want to kill them. I spoke to, uh, you know, uh, Luke Huntley, who is a snake catcher in Australia, and very similar story that most people's instinct is that these snakes are dangerous and they're going to kill them. Um, as, you know, as, as part of their, you know, management. Um, but that's just not a, a healthy, you know, way to maintain an ecosystem. And so I think, you know, you going out and teaching, even if you get across to one person, I think that's incredibly vital to, you know, making sure that these animals um, have a place in our world. Mm, no, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that, um, Steve. And for me, it's, it's where this sort of, um, you know, science in its traditional sense meets sort of more social science for me. Um, and I think it's where we have, in general, where we have cross-functional teams, we have massive success. Um, when each person plays a different role to the their right degree with the right level of accountability, uh, um, you know, responsibility, um, you, you see massive, massive friction, positive friction and creativity. Um, I, I think for me, though, one of, one of the biggest challenges and one of the biggest changes in the way that I kind of will, will talk to locals when I, when I was first going out and first doing this work, um, sort of 17 years of age, you, you, I mean, if I'm honest, probably play a bit, play a bit of an ignorant card. You do, you do play the, um, I'm a, I'm a foreigner in your land telling you about uh, a snake, which you live with and I don't. In fact, I'm only here for two weeks. Um, I'm telling you how to live your life and then I'm leaving, um, which is a very tough narrative. And I think it's also the wrong narrative. Um, and I think, you know, for me, uh, it's important to reflect on the fact that average income in Sri Lanka is, is exceptionally low. Um, and it's exceptionally low with with a sort of economic structure and social support structure of, of again, almost nothing. Um, if you're down on your luck in Sri Lanka, you, you're down on your luck. Uh, and it's very tough to get up on your luck, uh, as it is with um, a lot of kind of developing countries across the world. So for me, it's yes about making sure that locals understand um how snake ecology works, why they're there, understand them, um, and, and kind of bring down uh, that, that level of irrational fear. Um, but of course, real fear and, and rational fear definitely sits there too. 
um, and with a knowledge that local people do have to work that land and that's that's totally within their gift um, there are ways in which we can work with them to maximize the yields of their field whilst mitigating any negative impact towards uh, the snakes um, and, and doing that uh, in, a, in a big product rollout um, now for me that's the real question because you, you can very easily or at least simply account for maximizing two outcomes by regulating the other one either you give up on how much you care about snakes and maximize humans or the reverse but achieving a balance and the scales of gray that's where complexity sits but fortunately that's also where value sits for me as well um and i, I you know I, I went one year um into the fields and said guys you know um you would you Bites happen on the feet um, in this field. So here are a pair of rubber boots. They're super cheap. Um, snake bites won't go through these. Um, if you wear these, you can work all day with no stress. Now, I thought that was very sensible. Uh, I was very happy to give the boots. Um, but I was kind of interested to see, see what the effects were and, and if they'd wear them. Um, and, and one of the older guys in the group, um, through a translator, said to me, well, yeah, you know, we can wear these. Um, but if we wear these every single day, we're going to get blisters. Um, and if we, we don't wear them, maybe once in a blue moon, we get bitten by a snake. And for me, I'm thinking blisters. We can deal with blisters, right? Like blisters is overcomable. Um, but being bitten by Russell's viper, you know, best case scenario, you're, you're losing the foot or, or, or a, a toe. Or you know, there's huge mental health ramifications if you survive, which likelihood is maybe you don't. Um, but I think we're very good, um, especially kind of, taking a Western perspective on Eastern problems on saying, oh, we know what your issues are. Here are 12 solutions. Um, maybe 12 of those solutions don't work um, because we, we don't really, really understand the user. Um, and I think this is where, I mean, I, I spent kind of the last sort of maybe six, seven years being slightly embarrassed about not having a strong um, biological background uh, in terms of what I want to do and almost being embarrassed about my banking consultancy days. But um, now reflecting back, you know, user-centered design and focusing around a problem statement, this is how big things get solved. And so we can really apply a lot of that logic from a different field into science. And I think that's, that's where it's becoming really interesting for me. Um, and you, I think you mentioned in the intro that I'm doing my master's uh, currently in the UK at the University of Exeter, which is all true and um, great fun and going really well. Next year, um, we are running a three-month research project in Sri Lanka, completely addressing the notion of snake-human conflict in rural communities. Um, and a really big piece of the puzzle to this, um, in terms of people's perception uh, of snakes, revolves around myths uh, and mystery uh, and legend, uh, which for me, I mean, it always just sounds cool. The more you get to talk about legend and myths, it's just you're on a winner because you can brand that to the moon and back. Um, but of course, the complexity um, around myths and legends, especially with Sri Lanka, with a heavy um, Buddhist or, or Hindu religious context, is sometimes snakes are tied in with their culture. Um, and so when someone says, oh, well, snakes do this, and you know, you know biologically that snakes don't do that, um, you, you really have to reflect on um, values um, and, and kind of, is there something that I'm missing from what they're saying, because we're not talking about it in the same way. Um, I, a recent example, uh, I was in Guyana and um, we came across South America's most deadly snake, one of the better days of the trip, the Ferdelance. Uh, and it was a juvenile. Uh, and juvenile Ferdelance, viper species, live on the ground, 
grows to be between four and six foot, but generally you'll find between two and three and a half foot. This one was less than a foot. Um, the bottom little tiny piece of their tail is um, either light yellow uh, or light green, um, kind of depending on subspecies and uh, your eyesight um, and all kinds of that. But they are brightly coloured. And the logic is um, these small little snakes will wiggle this tiny little fluorescent piece at the end of their tail to attract prey. Once that prey comes, they quickly strike, envenomate the prey item, ultimately dies uh, and, and follows it and consumes it. Um, and I was there and uh, we found this snake and my guide was saying, oh, this is the most venomous kind um, of, of fertile ants. When they have these tails, that's when they're most venomous. Now, with, with my knowledge uh, of the snake, we know that the older that snake gets, the bigger the yield of venom gets. We know that it has a higher propensity to deliver much more toxic substance than a juvenile. So I'm thinking initially, well, that's just not true. Um, that's, that, that's a local perception, which I have to respect, but maybe I'm not going to write about that in my book. And, and then you reflect a little bit further, at least I've read that a little bit further. And whilst adult snakes have a chance to, you know, uh, inject larger amounts of toxic venom, juveniles have less of a control on how much they inject. And so whilst adults might have the ability to inject a ton, they might choose to inject very little. Um, because we all know that venom is valuable uh, to snakes, especially when they can't consume the thing that they are biting. But juveniles will just go and flow it into you as if no tomorrow. So as an interesting hypothesis now for me, you know, what's more dangerous, juvenile snakes or adult snakes, down to the cognitive ability to release venom. And I think it's very easy to, to miss those cues. Um, but from having experience doing it before, I'm looking to find similar tricks and cues uh, three months in Sri Lanka next year to, to solve what I think is a really underreported problem. That's fascinating. I, I honestly had no idea the snake could even control the amount of venom that they deliver. Um, that's, and that's something I've learned from you just, just now, which is really interesting and really amazing. And it, it does really, you know, kind of change your perspective on, yeah, the, the, you know, what we understand about these animals and, and how they interact um, you mentioned Guyana, and that's where I want to go next. Mm. I do want to come back to what we were just talking about, though, because I think that what you're talking about, about animal-human um, interaction, you know, there are so many lessons to be learned there, um, you know, in that field, but also, you know, for the way we do humanitarian medicine, which is that let's go for a week, two weeks, set up shop, and then leave. Um, it sounds like, you know, a very similar um, kind of issue. So if we have time, we can go back and explore that. But I want to hear more about Guyana. Um, so you, you've just returned uh, somewhat recently from there. Uh, and you, uh, I want to hear about kind of your experience there and, and lessons learned from that most recent adventure. Well, I mean, um, Guyana for me was ultimately a treat. Uh, it was it was something that um, I put together uh, as a celebration for finishing my undergraduate degree uh, at the University of York. And I appreciate that when people finish their degree, they normally go and look to hide in the jungle for a month. But for me, this is paradise. Um, and, you know, plagued with stresses of dissertations and project work and job applications, as everyone is, maybe most of the listeners here, they're going through um, Christmas deadlines 
planning a huge project isn't really what you want to add to your plate when you have enough of a three-course dinner going on at the same time. Um, so I, I, I look quite hard um, on Guyana, sort of um, what are the travel companies operating. It's the least travel country in South America. So I thought, well, that's great because probably adventure there is more of an adventure twang to it. Uh, I, I, I can buy some kind of amazing trip that I can go stress-free and just enjoy the end um, of my degree. And I, I actually convinced a friend of mine um, to come with me from university who had never ever been outside of France before. Um, and I remember him saying, oh, Harrison, this sounds really cool. And I'm thinking, well, it will be really cool. And I said, well, you know, is there any chance I'd come along? And I said, well, you know, Will, if you, if you come uh, on this trip, uh, I can promise that you'll have some of the best days um, that you've had. But I can also promise you, you might have some of the worst too. Um, and, and, and that kind of came to fruition towards the end. Um, but the point was kind of going online and having a look around and the last published tourist guide of Guyana, I think it's in 2014. It's a, it's a great book, but a lot of the contacts in there are expired. Uh, the emails aren't relevant. And so you have to do an awful lot of ad and groundwork. And after a while, having a look at what different routes were, nothing took my fancy. It wasn't right. Um, I kind of had all this experience of, of, of working in the middle of nowhere with, with venomous snakes. I was being honest with myself, despite the extra admin, that's what I wanted. Um, and also at this time um, for me, I decided that uh, I wanted to do more presenting work. I wanted to talk about snakes more. I felt like I had a skill set for it. Um, and I, I think it's quite an interesting topic. Everyone says, well, snakes is very niche. That's why I get that a lot. Snakes are very unique. Um, I, I just don't agree. I'm, uh, I, you know, I think, I think snakes are everywhere for us. Um, fine, maybe not the animal, but snakes are all over the latest range of Gucci clothing. Snake is a term which we use to describe someone who's, I don't know, a bit untrustworthy within, you know, within a group. I mean, the concept and the language and the pattern and the design around snakes, they, they form everything or a lot of the things at, you know, at the very least that, that we use to kind of go about our day by day. And I think snakes are always kind of interesting in the extent to which very few people have no opinion on snakes. I think either you are really interested or really afraid which for me is perfect because either way that equals interest um so great so i was thinking i i really want to go and do uh, a, a documentary kind of film vibe um about about snakes uh, i'm interested in exploring human snake relationships and then selfishly i'm also interested in exploring my own relationship with snakes i've done an awful lot of work in asia uh, and africa but i've never been to south america um I've had someone say before that jungles, once you've seen one, you've seen them all. Uh, this is the most, for me, um, ignorant comment that there can be. Jungles are so idiosyncratic. Um, and, and, and the Amazon being um, the holy grail from my perspective, I couldn't wait to go and learn a whole new skill set, a whole new bunch of trees, a whole new list of survival techniques. Um, so I got the map out of Guyana on my iPad uh, and I just drew some dots between places that I think made sense to find cool snakes um and called up uh, a number of sort of plain rental places and you know i totally understand how that would sound in the uk if you call up a place and go and rent a plane you're thinking oh you know must be some kind of millionaire or you know um, wealthy individual renting a plane in Guyana is like getting a train ticket it, it's all relative and yes it's more expensive than a train ticket it's also not um out of reach it's it's how things work especially in rainy season my first plan was to drive this route um i thought it was a very good plan until i realized that in rainy season my route was a river uh, and so i had to reconsider the planning assumptions um 
it ended up being that I, I rented a small plane for Will and I, or seats on this small eight-seater plane, uh, which flew us into the middle of Iroquois Rainforest, which um, is, is kind of the most incredibly diverse, um, protected jungle area uh, within Guyana. Uh, and we, we, we landed in there and did the, the research center there for three days just to kind of get acclimatized to jungle environment. Um, and, and, and for me, I think a lot of the beauty of the garniture was actually in the planning phase. Um, I'd spent so long thinking about Will as someone that hasn't traveled before and how we could stagger the trip to take someone who hadn't been into a jungle into a very remote area safely with considerate safety plans, considerate evacuation plans, whilst still making it fun uh, and, and, and feeling like an adventure. So for the first two weeks, we followed this dotted line staying at essentially research centers uh, and places with a roof. Um, and we travel there via four by four in part, boat in part. Um, one horrendous story, we ended up hitchhiking on motorbikes midnight into the savannas. Um, you you kind of have to take what you can get uh, in Guyana in terms of travel. And then after two weeks, uh, I, Will had to go back to London. He was working in London. He um, was working for Monzo, um, the banking company. Um, but the truth is, Will would have had to gone home after two weeks, regardless, because I think, like, kind of um, all brothers might spat and fight. But when you're put in the kind of the context of a jungle, um, tensions increase. No matter how reflective or calm you are, you have moments of weakness. Um, and for me, having been in jungle violence a lot, um, and, and knowing what it takes to be happy and healthy in a jungle and constant maintenance and proactive maintenance of your body, especially when you don't think you need it. Um, you know, this caused a bit of friction between Will and I, um, two 20 something year olds, you know, don't, don't tell me how much powder I need to put on underneath my armpits or like, you know, you do you, I'll do me. Uh, and ultimately, um, Will's feet split uh, and had really bad mosquito bites and blistering. So um, Will went home um and i went back into the middle of the jungle uh, with a hammock uh, two guides uh, and a german chap that i met in georgetown called thomas uh, and we did two weeks um while trekking through the middle of Guyana, looking for green anaconda bushmaster fertilance harpy eagle jaguar uh, and at this phase it was a case of i'd convinced them that i would find things and it was a bit of a um well let's see let's see what you can get aspect uh, and that was the challenge. And I was I was recording the whole thing for this documentary. And um, before the trip, I'd, I'd had some photos on my Instagram. Um, I'm sure some listening now might go through and scroll through and have a look at some of the old photos. I had some attraction from production companies to say, well, your photos look really good. Um, but do you have any um, content of you speaking? Do you have any videos? We can kind of credentialize you as potentially a, a presenter. Um, and I didn't really, especially in the context of doing wild work. So this is my whole thing. I'll, I'll film this month. Ultimately, I'll try and either sell this product to a production company or use it as credentials to get in on an ongoing project. Um, and this was this was the trip for us. Um, we were we're just trying to capture good content um, as amateurs, essentially in a very challenging environment. Um, but ultimately, had had massive amounts of success. Um, which yes, is a, is a bit bit of a testament towards good planning, honest passion, uh, and getting lucky with great people. So Harrison, you know, one thing that I see, you know, peppered throughout your conversation is that you know safety 
and pl planning specifically in safety are incredibly important. And they're really the keys to success for any kind of, you know, adventure, um, for any kind of expedition. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what you're kind of planning in and around safety and in, you know, kind of what, what you devote to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's, it's um, talking about safety can feel a little bit uncool um, because people would assume that it means taking the fun away. Whereas for me, um, on an expedition, having good safety planning allows you to do a lot more fun um, and allows you to do a lot more fun with a lot less stress. Um, it isn't about if you fall over and cut yourself, you can go back by yourself and get fixed in the hospital and don't worry, guys, I'll see you in a week. And that's not really how it works when you're in the middle of nowhere. You ruin the trip for everyone. Um, so it's less about fixing yourself and more about making sure you don't ruin everyone else's holiday uh, or, or expedition. Uh, essentially, it's, it's selfish to get injured. Um, that's kind of how we were thinking about it. Um, and of course, with regards to snake bites, it's almost impossible um, to, to really plan for that in a safety perspective. Um, Anti-venom kind of has to be kept chilled. Uh, and when you're three days away from a village which doesn't have a fridge, uh, you, there's no chance. Um, so you're, you're doing or you're championing strong preventative measures, um, which fortunately are hugely effective with regards to snakes. Um, slight tangent going back to my master's work. This, this is kind of the, the key point that I really want to put across because, you know, when you're talking about a snake bite, um, there's an awful lot of great focus and well-placed intention on, on producing cheaper antivenom critical. That's the only standard way we have of coming through a snake bite. Um, there's also a lot of interest going on venom snake ecology. Well, how do we understand the snake? How can we understand them and how we can, we can mitigate and manage for them? Um, but this is a human snake conflict, not just uh, a snake issue. Uh, so we have to think about ourselves uh, and what, you know, what can we do to prevent snakes? And for us in the jungle, um, there were a number of things we could do. So when we were sleeping, it was a case of um, hammocks off the floor. Not only was it uh, super wet, um, at night and really, really unfun, and there are ants and all kinds of other mammals, jaguar, and, um, but you know, probably it's more like mosquitoes and ants, which is the real problem. Uh, you want to be off the ground and up in the air, uh, a good basher. Um, nothing that goes on your body is on the floor at night. Your shoes go in sticks off the floor, your clothes in sticks off the floor. Um, nothing hits the danger zone. Um, I remember when Will first came to the jungle, he was surprised at how messy it was which for me, I thought was quite interesting. I thought, oh, this is the jungle. But actually, I think it's a really fair point um, because when we see the jungle uh, on uh, at home, uh, maybe you've got the telly on, you've got Attenborough in the background or whoever you've got going on will always support uh, the Brit. Um, but the jungle floor always looks pristine. Uh, and I'm, I'm afraid that is the power of post, um, that is post edit at, at its peak. The jungle is messy and horrible and brown and mean and unforgiving. And there is a good foot of foliage in wet season and a venomous snake can be hiding at any point within that foot, foot of foliage. Every foot you put down is a foot that you are willing to be bitten on in the knowledge that it probably won't happen. I mean, I think that in a nutshell is how you can think about going through the jungle uh, with regards to snakes. But then you take precautions. So we know that the venomous snakes that we're really concerned about are nocturnal. Uh, and we know that the venomous snakes that we're really concerned about like to live um, right in the roots of the big trees, um, in the lowlands. Um, and so 
hey, we're, we're, we're considerate around the roots of big trees and we're considerate in the lowlands and we get a big stick. And if we're, you know, if you, if you get a spook, if you get a funny feeling, yeah, maybe it's embarrassing and maybe that, that, um, not everyone gets the same feeling, but put a stick, have a, have a push around. It's, it's all in your head. Um, jungle survival for a long period of time, whether you're circumnavigating snakes or, I mean, more candidly, the weather, um, or the environment, um, or quite often, at least in my case, I've been there for so long, your own, your own head, uh, you, you, you really have to do what you need to do. Um, which I, I think can be counterintuitive sometimes. Um, people say, oh, you know, what's the right answer to this? And of course, there are a few technical solutions that you can offer. And there's a way to use a machete and there's a, a way to fish. and There's a way to check for snakes. Um, but, but if something is bothering you uh, in the jungle, there is not always a technical solution for that. You have to just be authentic with yourself, um, allow yourself to be concerned in that moment and then come through it and reflect on it and move forward. Um, there was a number of times at night I was sleeping out of the jungle where you hear noises. Um, now, Thomas and I and our guides, we're, we're logical chaps. Uh, I feel like we, we know what's what. Uh, we know what is there and what isn't there and what's dangerous um, and what isn't dangerous. But a week prior, some of the locals have told us about a, from my perspective, a mythical group um, of half human, half animal shapeshifters that live in the jungle called the Jumbi. And the Jumbi sounded great over a beer. They sounded hilarious. I mean, I've written in my journal, you won't believe what the Jumbi are like. They'll, they'll shift one day from being a Jaguar to, to being your best mate the next, and they shape shift and they move time. And then you fast forward to it, you're in the jungle, it's pitch black and you hear a rustle in the grass. The Jumbi is the first thing that springs into your head. I mean, yes, did we have rum in the jungle, but we didn't have enough. It was, it was right there. You're very concerned about even the most irrational things. Um, so you kind of keeping, keeping a check on, on, on what's, what's, uh, super important. That's our next podcast. I definitely want to cover that as an entire podcast is the Jumbie. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, it's all important. I think, you know, um, you know, for those of us who, you know, go out and experience these things, you know, my, my area isn't the jungle. I love the mountains. Um, but Safety's the, you know, safety's the most important piece. And I, you know, I'm big on checklists and lists and things of that nature. Um, but you are right. You know, the other uh, thing I want to expand on is, yeah, your own, it's your own head that oftentimes, uh, you know, you can get into um, and can oftentimes create the most hazard for you. Um, either being too arrogant about something uh, and about I can push through and, you know, regardless of knowing mm. this is not a safe environment. Um, or, uh, you know, the other extreme, which is, you know, not taking the, those opportunities. Um, now, I want to, aside from your uh, Jumbi um, uh, <laughs> sightings, uh, I, what, what other animals, you know, did you interact with? And did you have any unique experiences on this trip that you haven't uh, experienced before? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think just to briefly touch on what you said there about checklists. Yes, uh, I'm that guy. Um, I was in was inbox with silly checklists um, months before going, what clothes to buy, what pants to buy, what socks to buy, only buy two pairs of trousers, only buy two pairs of socks. Um, I'm not with you when we're going to be washing these in the river. But in the river, there's electric eel, stingray, black caiman, all kinds of water disease, and you're going to have cuts. So let's, let's try and minimize time in the water. Um, all of those absolutely front of mind. I mean, we also had um, 
helicopter evac on our insurance, super important. Um, we had great contacts listed from Georgetown to Lethem, which is the other big town in Ghana, big telecoms hotspot. Um, we were uh, a good couple of days from getting somewhere, but if you didn't have plans, you'd be a good couple of months from getting somewhere. Um, so we had all that was put into place um, to get us out of a hotspot. Something happened and we all went in with the full knowledge and acceptance of what we were going to do. And I think that's a huge one. Uh, if someone feels like they're being dragged into something they don't fully understand and they're there and a week later they, they have a concern. This is the person that has a problem. This is the person that has an accident. Um, people that come into the jungle um, with me um, and myself, we, we fully commit to what we're going to do uh, and we either do it together or we don't do it together. Um, so would totally resonate with what you're saying there, Steve. But in terms of seeing other things um, that I hadn't seen before, yes, is is the answer to that question. Um, I'd never been to South America before uh, and a month in the jungle, even in wet season, which is the worst time to go um, out of any time. And it's probably the worst habitat in the world to visit at its worst period in the world where everything bites and stings. Everything is either inconsumable or will consume you. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes need must. And we only had a month and that, that month was July. And so on the plane we go um, in dry season. Of, of course, water is the source of life um, in the jungle, as it is nearly everywhere. Um, and so animals will flock to uh, the relatively small amount of water in the jungle. And so to find things, you don't have to go looking for them. All you have to do is go looking for the water and then just wait. Uh, in the wet season, there's water everywhere. Uh, and being interested in reptiles, they their habitat just simply expands. Uh, and so it is really, really tough to find cool things. That being said, a good lot of effort, uh, pre-reading, energy and coffee will get you places where you want to go. Um, I, if I turned over one, I turned over a thousand leaves to find deadly venomous snakes um, or even non-venomous snakes. I mean, one of my favourite snakes in the Amazon, the green anaconda, um, non-venomous, big constrictor. Um, that was for me the pinnacle. I wanted to properly find a massive snake. Um, and day three, I found a feral lance most deadly snakes, small viper species. Um, day four, I found the first of 25 Amazon tree boas, um, arboreal small constrictor snake, but really pretty. Um, if you're not familiar with them, um, they're an amazing example of um, sexual well, polymorphism. Um, so the same species will be uh, yellow or orange or uh, gray, all in the same river system. Um, and they're really overlooked because another snake that lives in the Amazon is really pretty. Uh, is the emerald tree boa. Now, unpopular opinion, Amazon tree boas are way cooler, more colours. Um, I don't know what's wrong with the world. And they're also easier to find and there's loads of them, so um, get in amongst it. Uh, we, we were, I'd love to have found a Bushmaster, which is obviously um, the silent death that they're referred to in the Amazon. Um, longest vipered species in the Western Hemisphere, super cool. Um, fangs like hypodermic needles. And, and you only want to find them if you see them first. If they see you first, you don't want to find them. Um, but th through looking, that was the one thing that we didn't get. But I got an anaconda on my second last day, um, which for the documentary, which is, is still an edit, is going to be the, uh, the kind of the grand, the, the grand reveal. Uh, it's not so much of a surprise talking about it now, but um, something to look forward to in the story. If that's quite interesting. But snakes aside, um, because I think that's important. I've been so lucky to travel to amazing places um, and others that will have done that know that if you're somewhere super cool for too long, it all becomes relative. Um, you, you stop appreciating the amazing waterfall, you stop appreciating the, the width and the power of the rivers. 
um, and maybe even you get too specific on a target animal. Um, I got far too specific on snakes. Um, we had a week where we found hardly anything. Um, and I was the snake expert. It's on me to find the things. Um, I borrowed money from um, friends and investors in the UK to make the trip real. Um, not to mention, I, I told tons of friends at the pub that I was going to find a massive snake, which is far more important for pride. Um, and so you're, you're having a week where you don't find anything, you, you're stressed. And so if you see another beautiful scarlet macaw in the sky, all you're thinking is, God, that squawk's annoying. God, I wish that didn't do that. Or a toucan, what, what, what ridiculous beak. It must be so hard to kind of move between the branches. You, you, you really do have a critical and horrible perspective on wildlife. Not to mention the fact that you don't eat anything and the water you drink is laced with iodine uh, and you're humid and you're not sleeping and you're miserable. So it all kind of amalgamates into um, really uh, a loss of value and a, a poor perception. But I, I, I was quite lucky um, that whilst I had had moments of, of, of lowness and everyone does, um, I do bounce back quite quickly from them um, and was able to really enjoy uh, a sighting of the harpy eagle uh, in Guyana, which is the most powerful bird um, of prey in the world. Um, incredibly hard to find. Um, I think there was a recent documentary, um, Planet Earth, where there was a group of um, essentially researchers who spent six months uh, in the same small stretch of the Amazon to, to kind of film um, the hatch, uh, the hatching of a um, harpy eagle chick. Um, we saw a juvenile um, on day three being in the middle of the nowhere flying from treetop to treetop um, looking for, ultimately looking for prey, whether that's howler monkeys or sloths or large arboreal mammals, they're going for them. Um, and, and it's interesting actually because we'd had that week before of seeing nothing and then and then seeing a harpy although we in many respects didn't care which sounds ridiculous and crazy when you see something so regal um, and so special in an environment in and of itself which is amazing it sparks energy into you in a way that um, a soft drink never could or a chocolate bar never could um, it, it basically sparks belief um, and I think that kind of goes back to that to the mental aspect of jungle work and jungle survival and jungle expedition is you you have to move towards a goal. Um, and if you see something incredible on the way, which isn't what you want, but but that gives you energy, steer into that. Um, I also saw a, a jaguar uh, on on the fourth day of the trip. We were in a car, um, and I was trying to film. This actually, filmed me a conversation about the jumbi with the guy in the back seat. I was thinking, this is the best content I'm ever going to get in a month. I mean, snakes have become redundant very quickly. Uh, and then they're going, oh, they, I mean, I think they, uh, the guys in the car thought, um, thought it was a different kind of large mammal crossing there, like a, because they still have cougars, I think you guys call the mountain lions um, in the Amazon. They thought, oh, you know, cougar. And I was like, oh, move the camera around rapid fire. And they were shouting that it's a jaguar. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't mistake a jaguar. Um, those rosettes um, that they're kind of um, on the side of this massive predator. Um, and then it kind of slinked off across the road um, into the jungle. And to my surprise, the, the guy driving the car then stopped the car, got out and tried, tried to follow it into the jungle. And I'm thinking, well, I'm all up for finding something. I'm, I'm all up for videoing it. But I mean, I've, I've got three more weeks um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm not after a quick death wish. If it's OK with you guys, I'll, I'll be the third one back because I haven't got it on around it. I've got to outrun you and you. So that'd be my plan. Um, but no, um, Jaguar, Harpy Eagle, a whole host of snakes, 
um, black caiman, world's biggest caiman species, um, a whole list of incredible things, not to mention bullet ants and poison dart frogs. And <sighs> list is too long to mention, actually, Steve. It's amazing. Well, we're running out of time. And I honestly, we could spend the rest of the day chatting and maybe we'll reconvene again uh, soon. I'm certainly really excited, as I'm sure many of our listeners will be as well, to see your documentary when it comes out. And we'll make sure that we post a link for that. I think you're... you're um, in, as you've embodied, uh, you know, kind of how you should be doing things, um, you know, taking those precautions, making checklists, um, being safe, having all of those, you know, things um, prepared. I think that's in incredibly important. Um, Guyana should be sending you a check because you're going to increase their tourism, I think, threefold um, with with these with these stories. So you may want to to uh, ask them about some royalties. Um, but in the la I'll, I'll leave you with as well, I know you're at the University of Exeter. Um, if you ever wanna add to your coursework, your course load, you know, w we have a uh, extreme medicine uh, master's program there. Uh, I think you'd be a wonderful candidate. So we'll send you that information to add a few courses to your workload as well. Oh, 100%, send it across. Great. That sounds fantastic, Steve. I'd love to yeah. do that. Great. Well, it's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, you uh, have, you know, I'm sure many more stories to, to share, and hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again sometime soon. For those of you joining us, thank you for spending your time with us today. There are lots of podcasts out there, none as good as ours, of course, uh, but we appreciate you spending your time uh, here with us at World Extreme Medicine. I do want to, you know, let everyone know we have a, a fellows program uh, in World Extreme Medicine. Uh, and so if you're interested in that, please visit our website at worldextrememedicine.com. Uh, you can learn more about actually the uh, um, University of Exeter master's program in uh, extreme medicine, which Harrison's going to be hopefully signing up for here soon as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, explore our other social media, including our Instagram and Facebook uh, lots of information there about upcoming courses, upcoming podcasts. Uh, and then, of course, it's a year away. We just finished our Extreme Medicine Conference. Uh, but uh, 2022, we hope uh, to have, again, an amazing you know, conference and programming. And hopefully, Harrison, you will join us there as well. Oh, I'd love that. And actually, I have one last treat. Um, sure. One, one little last bullet point to add to the agenda. Uh, yes. I'm actually... I think giving a live session uh, for the World Extreme Medicine Society what, in January with regards to snake bite prevention in Sri Lanka. Um, so, so if you're interested in, uh, in all things snakes, Sri Lanka and um, bite mitigation, um, the complex questions, not just the easy ones, then um, do join along. Uh, it should be a really good discussion. Wonderful. And we'll make sure to link that in the show notes as well. So thank you, uh, uh, Harrison, for joining us. Thank you. Our, to our listeners. Uh, this has been a World Extreme Medicine podcast, and we'll see you next time here at World Extreme Medicine.